The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Are we on? Is this working? If it's not, we could go home early and watch the ball game. That'd be okay with me. Anybody recording the game right now, by the way? Is anyone recording the baseball game? Speak now or forever hold your peace. All right, it's 5 nothing Houston. <clears throat> All right. So, let's uh, do me a favor, grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 6, and if you'd like to plan ahead, also go to Exodus chapter 13. We'll also be in Genesis 1, 1, John 1, Colossians 1, and Malachi, as well as Proverbs. So go ahead and just stick some fingers in all those places. You have enough. I didn't go over 10. You're fine. And we get my favorite topic today. Um, at a time when I have to confess, I literally half an hour ago tried everything I could to not teach tonight. Um, I'm sick. I'm not feeling really well right now at all. I'm like freezing cold. So um, I'm going to teach and scoot. It's not because I don't like you, just so you guys know. And I came that close, like we were going to watch a video, and then I felt guilty about it. So, Which we're not supposed to do, because that's not religion, right? I mean, that is religion. That's not, oh well. If it's lame, we'll just go home and watch the game. Amen. All right, all right, Matthew chapter 6, Exodus chapter 13, and we really need grace from God on this, so let me pray. Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would be with us, Lord, tonight. Um, your word says that your grace is sufficient for us, that you are made strong in our weakness, and there is much weakness on this stage here tonight. So I pray, God, that you, um, Lord, would just speak through me in spite of me. I pray, God, that your spirit would be our teacher, that your word would be our instructor, that you would be the one who leads, and uh, that you would just grace us with your presence, the power of your spirit, understanding, but, but also, Lord, just the ability to discern what we do with this in our own lives moving forward, um, and, and the, the strength and fortitude by your spirit to do it moving forward, so that this isn't just some night where we heard a Bible teaching, we all shook our heads in agreement or grumbled in disagreement, and then we went on about our way. That doesn't serve any of us, and it doesn't glorify you. So I pray that tonight, Lord, you would just lead us, teach us, and you would have your way with us. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. So last week, Sam did a great job teaching through the topic of mercy, having mercy like Jesus. Um, and I was intentionally trying at the beginning to tie um, this into that because Sam talked about the idea of um, actively having mercy for people and who we actively have mercy for and all that kind of stuff. And today I have giving, give like Jesus. And so at first I was like, all right, I'm going to tie this into the mercy stuff that we talked about last week because giving like Jesus could mean all sorts of things. Giving like Jesus can mean we give of our time. Giving like Jesus can mean we give of our emotions, we give of our sympathy, we give of all those kind of things, and so that's what I worked on a lot today. Um, the problem is, is that's garbage, because that's me being a chicken to not want to talk about the one thing we actually really do need to talk about when we're talking about giving, and that is tithing, you religious zealots, all of you. I was going to say money, but apparently there's some Pharisees on that side, so I'm going to turn the podium like this. <clears throat> No, we're going to talk about money because 
When we're talking about serve like Jesus and we're talking about mercy like Jesus, we're going to end up covering all those kind of things. And, and here's the reality. Um, I can count on two fingers the number of times I've talked about money at Heritage Christian Fellowship. Um, but it's a, it, that's wrong. That's, that's not okay. Now, the reason that we don't want to do this, there's two different reasons, one of which is some people have done it so poorly and so badly for so long, right? That just give us your money, give us your money, give us your money kind of thing. But the other part that pastors can wrestle with that I realize has been part of, part of my experience here at Heritage is that it's, it's pridefully motivated in wanting you to think good of me as a good person and not associate me with those who have talked about those things in the past. And that's just plain old pride. It's just reality of it. Like, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want them to think that I'm that guy, so I'm not going to teach on that thing, so I'm not that guy. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that is the Bible. Because in the Bible, Jesus says, where your treasure is, that there your heart will be also. Um, he, he literally says, as we're going to see in just a little while, that the number one competitor for our heart and our affections is money. And it's the one thing that we don't want to talk about. It's too personal. It's too weird. It's been abused too much. Um, all that kind of stuff. And, and, and that's just not... Right. How do we take discipleship as Christians seriously if we are choosing not to talk about the thing that Jesus said is the number one competitor for the affections of our heart? You can't. And then on top of that, Hebrews 13 says that, that we as Bible teachers will one day, scariest verse in the Bible for me, will one day stand before God and give account for how we led and ministered to the people that God put in our care. And so if we skip that, that means it's like, how did you do, Jeff? Well, you gave us all these people, and we taught them, and we ministered to them. Um, I didn't talk about money, though, because I was more worried about how I would feel and whether I'd offend them or not. And I know you said it was like the number one competitor for our hearts, but I did a whole bunch of other things, and hopefully that'll be okay. That's not a conversation I'm really interested in having. So um, if we're talking about money, the good thing about talking about money here is that this series is on Like Jesus. It's not about give like Jeff thinks you should give. It's not about deal with your money like Jeff thinks you should deal with your money. It is about what does Jesus do? How did Jesus give? How do we approach those things? And the Bible has a lot to say about those. So, so we're going to start by just talking a little bit about Jesus' character, about God's character. If we're supposed to give like God gave, let, let's talk a little bit about God's character. You guys know the old uh, silly joke, is there... Anything God can't do, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? You know, some of those kind of things. Well, there are things that God cannot do or will not do. There's things that God cannot do and will not do. Someone we'll see in the text tonight. Um, one of them is God can never be surprised. And that is really, really good news. I can't tell you how many times when I'm talking with people that are going through difficult situations that emergencies come, 911s or tragedies or traumas, it is such a comfort to be able to sit down with them and go, listen, I, you dialed 911, but know this, God did not. God knows what's going on, and he loves you, and he's here. Like There is comfort in the fact that God knows everything that's happening. He knows everything that's going to happen, and he has promised, even in spite of those things, as terrible as they look to us, that he has our best interests and his love for us um, constantly in, in mind, no matter how bad the thing goes. That's good news. Amen? Something else, God will and can never change. You're going to see this when we get to Malachi a little bit later tonight. God cannot change. That's really good news. Because if, if God could change his mind about Jeff, he would have done it a long, long time ago. But God has chosen you. 
He's chosen me. He set his love on us. And that is a good thing to know, that the love and mercy of God towards us is not, like God's character is not going to change. He's not going to go from one who loves us to one who's tired of us. Amen? That's good news. God cannot overlook sin. He has to deal with it. You're either going to be the one who deals with your sin or you're the one who's going to stand under the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ who dealt with your sin for you. But your sin will be dealt with. It's one or the other. And then the one that we're going to think about tonight, most predominantly as we're thinking about this, is that God cannot be second. God can't be second. God is first. Now, we can put God second, theoretically. Like we can structure and prioritize our life in a way that puts God second. We can consider God second. We can approach things of God second or third or fourth, but it doesn't actually change the reality of who God actually is. So, so there's some verses that we can talk about in this. Genesis 1-1, the very first verse in the Bible, but somebody in here can quote it for me. Genesis 1-1 says, right, so positionally and timeline-wise, who was here before any of this that we know? God. God came first. God was first. God is first. God came first before anything else was God. Now, you, this is picked up on again in the New Testament. When you get to the book of John, it takes this same idea and actually narrows down our focus to the person of Jesus specifically himself. It says in John 1, verse 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, what was out there that was before God? Nothing. More specifically, what was out there that was before Jesus Christ? In the context of that particular passage, the answer to that is nothing. Jesus came what? First. Jesus came first. Colossians 1, we just finished a series on Colossians. Colossians 1, verse 15 says this. He is the image of the invisible God. This is speaking of Christ. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Means supreme over, above, first, most important. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is first. He will either be our Lord or he will be our judge. We do have that. That question comes before us, but he is first. He comes first. He is first, no matter what we think. Now, we can prioritize things all we want, but on that day, we will bow. We will bow in humble submission before the one who comes first. What side of the fence depends on why you're bowing. Amen? So he's first. There's nothing we can do to change that. We can't re-rank him. Now, the problem is, though, is we tend to make a lot of things about us. We even make the Bible about us to some degree. Psalm 23. Psalm 23, 
beautiful passage. Probably many of you could quote that one. I'm not going to ask you to tonight. Psalm 23 says this, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. That's a beautiful passage. Amen. The problem is sometimes we'll take passages like that and unknowingly, unintentionally, we'll make passages like that about us. Like that passage, you got to know this, it's not about us. Now we could read it and go, Man, the Lord is into me. He's going to feed me and protect me and comfort me. He's going to be with me. I don't have to be afraid of nothing. I'm going to rest in the house of the Lord forever. Is that what God's trying to get across in that passage so much? No, no it, he's talking about himself. He's glorifying himself. He's saying, this is who I am. I comfort and I love and I feed and I provide and I take care of my children the way a shepherd takes care of his sheep. And then he goes into the analogy and he talks about all those things. And you go, seems like a subtle difference. No, listen, he's for us. You don't give your life for someone if you're not for us. The difference is though, it's not about us. He, he died for us, but he didn't die because of us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is at its core the ultimate example of the glory of God and the character of God. Because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see his kindness, we see his love, we see his grace, we see all of those things, but we see his justice, his wrath against wickedness, his hatred for things that hurt his children. We see all of those things at play that we brought, into, we brought to the table. But we see how God glorifies himself by saying, I will not go against my character and who I am. I'm going to care for my children without sacrificing who I am. And I'm going to do it this way. And so the gospel is about Jesus. We benefit for it from it. Excuse me. It is awesome. But he did it. Make no mistake. He does it for his namesake. And we're the benefactors of that. Does that make sense? And why is that important? Because it's important to understand God's first this is about him. God is first. God goes first. God is first. And we are commanded throughout scripture to put God first. Now it's put lowercase p, if that makes sense. Maybe it's better ways, better said to acknowledge the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ and to order our lives uh, accordingly. But we're called to put God first. The Ten Commandments comes up. What does the Ten Commandments start out with? I am the Lord your God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Put me first. This is what he calls us to do. And the heart of that actually plays out throughout the New Testament. People go, oh, that's Old Testament passage. That's just all oh, the law. We're not about the law. Okay, well, this is give like Jesus. So I want us to look at Matthew chapter 6. This is a teaching by Jesus, given at, um, in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to start in verse 25. Genesis 6, 25 says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. 
Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I love this passage. Anybody else like this passage? Am I alone in this one? It's a beautiful passage, right? This used to be my wedding text. Like when I would do weddings, this is the text that I would use, and I would have the couple up there, and I would talk about like, look, don't worry. Seek first the kingdom of God in your marriage and all those kind of things. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful passage. Um, but in the context in which I was using in all these ways, I was sort of divorcing it from its actual context and using it for its beauty in the wedding, which still applies but not entirely uh, accurate from a biblical interpretation standpoint. And let, let me talk to you about this, a little bit about why. I want to first point out something. The context by which um, Jesus says, I don't want you to worry. Don't worry about this. Don't worry about this. Don't worry about this. Why does he say? He does it within the context. You guys remember when we looked at the Lord's Supper? Or no, I'm sorry, not Lord's Supper. The, um, the Lord's Prayer. We talked about prayer. And the overriding um, context that helps us understand the Lord's Prayer is the reality that God is our who? It's the first line of the Lord's Prayer. Come on. God, the Lord is... Our Father, our Father who art in heaven. That's the context of this passage. Over and over, he says, why are you worrying about this? Your Father. Why are you worrying about this? Your Father. Don't worry about this. Don't you know that? Your Father. So it's important to understand right away that, that Jesus is pulling us into the understanding of some sort of um, relationship example between child, father. But even more than that, he's, he's making himself, he's making God our father, right? Everybody tracking with me on that. And it's beautiful. He's saying, why are you worried? Why are you worried about this stuff? Don't you know that your, your father's going to take care of you? Don't worry about your clothes. Your father's going to take care of you. Don't, don't you see these birds? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about this. Again, beautiful passage. Now, here's the thing. It starts, however, with a very important word. The whole passage, verse 25, starts with a very important word. What is that word? Therefore, you guys heard the old cheesy line, if you ever see the word therefore, you should ask what it's there for. So if the word therefore is there, it's connecting this particular thought to something else. It's taking a previous thought and a attaching it to it. So what is the context? What is it that Jesus is talking about? And then he says, but therefore, look, don't worry. What would we be worrying about? What's it attached to? Verse 19 of Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So let's track with this passage. Jesus is saying, listen, here's what it looks like. This, the context of the overall teaching is Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God, what it looks like to be part of the kingdom of God, what it looks like to be his. And he says, as you're living this kingdom of God lifestyle, here's what I want you to do. You're, you're going to approach money and things differently. You're investing in a kingdom to come, not a kingdom here. This kingdom that you guys are here in right now, you have to understand it is fallen. Things rust. Things die. Things corrode. You will die. And if you're investing in things here on this earth that will eventually end, you are wasting all of that. But he goes even further than that. He actually is doing it in the concept uh, or the context of a warning. He says, not only are you wasting the things that you invest in if you only invest in things of this world, but, but it goes to an actual um, exposition of what actually is going on inside our heart. Because he says, no one can serve two masters. He says, where your treasure is, speaking of money, that's the context of the passage, that's where your heart will be also. And so he says, listen. As you're living this kingdom, and you got to remember, up until this point, what are the things he's talked about? Man, he's talked about being salt and light. He's talked about dealing with anger and loving and forgiving other people. He's talked about divorce. He's talked about oaths. He's talked about not retaliating against those who've wronged you. He's talked about loving your enemy. In verse six, chapter one or chapter six, verse one, he starts talking about how to give to the needy. He talks about the Lord's prayers. We just talked about your Father. Here's how you're to pray. He talks about fasting, and then he moves into treasures in heaven. And the average person as they're hearing must be thinking, wait a minute, like if I do this, like this just isn't how the world works. And if I start doing this, if I'm like giving to the needy and I'm meeting this need and I'm doing this and I'm, and I'm taking even this idea of money and I'm investing things differently, like this, my whole world's going to, and he goes, hold, hold on, therefore listen, don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't be in fear. There's a lot of people that they don't want to give money to the Lord because they want to wait and make sure that they actually have money before they give it. But think about the story of the parable um, of, the, of the talents. The one servant who got one talent that buried it and did nothing with it, and he's held up as the example of the wicked servant. What was his motivating factor in not investing what he had? There was fear. He says, I was afraid. I was afraid I only had this. I was afraid if I lose it. I know that, that I think you're, you're like a hard man and you're going to come and you're going to punish. Fear was the motivating factor for him in not doing this. And God is coming. And these are the words of Christ himself saying, listen, 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 don't be afraid. But it's a completely different way of living. Yes, it is. It's a completely different economy. Yes. I, I, what do I do? Like, what if I, what if I run out? What if I can't pay a bill? Or, or what if I'm like hungry? He's like, hey, whoa, 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 hold on. And that's where the father context comes in. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You have a good father. You have a heavenly father that loves you. I mean, look at these birds. These birds are flying around. They're clothed beautifully. You guys are taking pictures of birds and putting them on Instagram and showing how pretty the birds are. Don't you guys see that? Yeah, Jesus, I posted one today. Yeah, okay. Where do you buy that? 
He didn't go buy a bird suit like some of you in your costumes last night. No, he didn't do that. He woke up looking like that. Why? He doesn't stress about how he's going to live. A feather just fell out of that one right there. He doesn't look too concerned, does he? Well, no, but he's a bird. I, I know, that's my point. He's not worried about it. Why? And here's the key on this. The thing that he points back to is provision. He's saying, listen, he's not worried about this because over and over and over, he's had feathers. Over and over and over, he's found food. Over and over and over, he's got what he needs. So what is it that he's pointing us to? He's pointing us to an understanding of a father-child relationship in which the child knows that he doesn't have to worry about anything. Man, we took our kids to Disneyland. When was that, Vern? Like a year ago, summer, I guess it was, last summer. And we took our kids to Disneyland. My kids have been so excited. They were just thrilled. Wait a minute, Disneyland. Which one's Florida? We took our kids to Disney World. We went to Florida. We went to Disney World. We went to uh, Busch Gardens. We went to SeaWorld. We went to Discovery Cove. We went to all these different places. It was a really expensive vacation that we saved for for a really long time. Do you know what my kids never worried about? Money. They never, not once, did my kids come to me before that trip and go, Dad, how are the books coming? Because I'm nervous. Is this going to work out? Or while we were there, hey, Dad, I know hot dogs in Disney are expensive, and I'm getting kind of hungry. Um, what do we, that's not what they did. You know what, you know what kids do in Disney when they're hungry? What do they do? I want food. That's all they say. They just, they declare their need, but they're not anxious. They're not afraid. They're not worried. They know mom and dad are going to take care of them. We're not going to bring them into Disney and then make them starve. They know that those things are taken care of. Now, we worried, but that's because we worry, right? But that's what God's preaching to us, too. He's like, Jeff, just listen. Don't worry about these things. You have a father who's going to take care of you. And it, it, the issue is one of discipleship that's of trust. And here's why. So my son, Bentley, as you guys know, he came into our family just a few years ago. When Bentley first came into our family, he worried. He worried a lot. He worried about, are we going to get food? How much food are we going to get? Am I going to have provision? Are you still going to be here? Because he'd been through foster care stuff where he'd been over and over and over. A new parent, a new parent, a new parent, a new parent. Lots of worries. But now he's been under our roof. He's been under our wing, if you will. He's been part of our family. He's seen how his grandparents take care of him on both sides of the family. He's seen how his brothers and his sisters and how he, he's experienced how his father is going to take care of him. He's learned all these things, and now he doesn't worry. He doesn't worry about where his food's going to come from because he knows mom and dad are going to take care of him. And that's the context by which Jesus says to us, listen, when you approach money, the first thing you need to understand is this. You have a father a good father. And number two, your father has always provided for you. And he makes promises in scripture that he's going to take care of you. And guess what? God can't change. He can't go back on his promises. So you can hang in there. Now, can you take that to unnecessarily risky? Yes, of course you can. You can go, awesome, then I'll just give everything away and I'll sit in front of the refrigerator and watch it to fill with food. It doesn't work like that either. There's scripture about working. There's scripture about wisdom. There's scripture about all of those things. Today, we're just simply talking about that of giving. But the motivation of giving, the motivation for our confidence in giving is God's provision and the fact that we have a good, good father.
Amen? You guys tracking with me on that? Okay, so we're commended that we are, uh, our motivation for giving is God's provision, but the scriptures give us an order in that very text. It says when you're dealing with money, what is the first thing that we seek? Come on, you guys know. Are you checking the score? Is it different? Come on. <laughs> seek what? First, the kingdom of God. So we see the order is even implicit in this. Who comes first? God comes first because God moves first. And even in the text, we see this. God doesn't just come first, but he also moves first because he says in the text, look, 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 don't worry about it because I've already, haven't I always taken care of you? He comes first and he moves first. So this is the order of given. Now there's another passage um, that kind of spells some of this out. This is a a proverb. Proverbs uh, 3 verses 9 through 10 says this. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now we don't, this is the kind of stuff we don't like to teach a whole lot because so much of it has been robbed by terrible prosperity theology. And it's not, it's not fair. Like we should take this back in a correct understanding because, I mean, my goodness, the Bible's pronouncing blessing on us if we do this. We shouldn't just write this off. But here's, here's the heresy. So prosperity theology, um, you know, Tickle me, Jabez, you know, those, those kinds of things. Here, here's the heresy. What is it about that spot? I don't know. I guess I'll just stare here. Um, the, the, the heresy is this. You give, now God owes. Does that make sense? You give, now God owes you. God, I gave, bring it, you owe me. But that's not how it works. God is first and God moves first. So to put God into our debt and flip things around not only takes the order out, but it actually makes the motivation for all of those things no longer God and his graciousness and his provision. What's the motivation now? Us, because we want to get. So I better give because I want to keep getting. I want to keep getting. I want to keep getting. Well, now, who is the God that you're serving? You're tithing to yourself. You're tithing to your own God because you want to give money away that you might receive. That's not what the scriptures are talking about. Jesus does not come second. Jesus is first, Jesus moves first, and Jesus doesn't do seconds. What the Bible is teaching us to do is move first with our money. And here, this is the tricky one. First fruits giving is a biblical process that's or a, bib- a biblical concept that says we give to God before we do anything else. That's Old Testament, you say. That doesn't apply anymore. Well, again, back to New Testament. What did we just learn? Seek what? First, the kingdom of God. Why is that so important? Why does God care which check I write first? Why does God care what I do with my money first? Why can't God set, come second, third, or fourth? Because first fruits giving is the only one that actually involves faith. First fruits giving is the only one that says, I'm going to put my trust in you and your provision and your goodness and your kindness, not these other things. And so we're constantly being called to do this. It's an issue of discipleship so that our trust in God will continue to grow. Now, the blessings that God does promise, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless you. The other heresy that happens in prosperity theology is if I give $10, I'm going to get back 20 If I give $30, I'm going to get back $60. Well, that's not necessarily the case. You might not see a, if you will, financial return tangibly in this time um, on the giving that you give. You may not see that, but you will experience blessing. For example, 
Um, if every person in church tithe, and just for the sake, if you just use the 10 the 10%, the old religious, you know, tithe means 10%. If you just use the, the 10% thing, the statistics on this. If every person currently attending church right now in the United States and in the world around tithe 10% of whatever it is they have, there would be enough food to feed every single person on the planet. There would be enough medicine to provide for every single person on the planet. Anybody struggling with health care costs right now? Um, there would be enough clean water to give to deal with thirst for every single person on the planet. And there would be tens of billions of dollars left over that the churches would be going, what do we do with this? Anybody think that sounds like a better world to live in than the one that we live in right now? There are blessings. And then what would the world think of the church then? You think the church would deal with the same loss of liberty issues that they are all over the place if we were taking care of everyone's food, everyone's medicine, everyone's clean water? I think they'd let us hang around a little bit, don't you? There's blessing in that. There's blessing in that. Now, here's something to understand. Like I said, nobody wants to talk about tithing, especially you start bringing out numbers and all that kind of stuff. Like, no one wants to talk about that. But listen, everyone does it. Everyone tithes. The difference is some of us tithe to people or things that can't possibly do for us the thing that our Heavenly Father is promising to do for us as we give. So we'll give to drugs. We'll give to alcohol. We'll give to nice houses. We'll give to sports. We'll give to vacations. And we'll expect that all of these are the different things. And we'll go for these things first because this is where we're going to find fulfillment. And over and over and over, those things let us down, which Jesus told us, you're investing everything in things that are just going to let you down in rust. Moth and rust are going to corrupt. But instead, he's saying, seek me first. And he's doing this to say, look, because no one else can possibly do for you what I'm promising to do for you. And so I want you to grow in your trust in me and not these other things. So God has to come first in sequence and in priority. God has to be our priority in every area of life, including finances. And biblically speaking, God has to come first financially. We give to God first, and then we do the rest of it. And it involves faith. Tithing, giving to the Lord is more about, uh, more about putting faith in God and less about, let me make sure that I can craft really smartly a budget that's going to fit these things in. No, we are called to give to God first because it is a heart discipleship issue. Malachi says this too. If you're in Matthew chapter 6, right, you guys can go here. You're big boys and girls. Hang a left about 10 pages or so and go to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, and we'll begin in verse 6. Malachi 3, 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. And that is what? It's really good news. You can, can say it loud. That is what? Good news. Um, and why is that good news? He tells us, Therefore you, O children, are not consumed. Whew. <laughs> right? If God could change his mind about us, he would, and we would be in huge trouble. So praise God that he can't change his mind. But look what he says, verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Who from the days of our fathers has turned aside from the statutes of the Lord and not kept them? Is he only talking to Israel here? 
Does this only apply to the nation of Israel here? No, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So this is us. Everybody say, this is us. This is us. That's much better. Thank you. So from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? That's a great thing to ask. You've turned away from me. Return to me and I'll return to you. Okay, how do we do it? And out of all the things that God could go to, pray and read your Bible every day for starters. Or start serving in church. Or you name it. What does he say? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. Then your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. And then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. He had blessed Israel above any other nation, but he had blessed them for the purpose of being a blessing to others. Israel, if you will, was supposed to be the one that makes sure that the rest of the world has food, that makes sure the rest of the world has water. All, they were supposed to take care of the alien, right? They were supposed to clothe those who were naked. They were supposed to feed the hungry. And these things carry way on into the teachings of Jesus who said, if you haven't done these things, then you haven't done them for me. If you clothe the hungry, you clothe me. If you fed the needy or the hungry, I'm sorry, if you clothe the naked, you clothe me. If you fed the hungry, you fed me. If you've given a child a cup of cold water, you gave it to me. This is the constant call all the way in through the teachings of Jesus. But what had Israel done? Israel said, no, oh, we say this all the time. We're, we're not just, it's not that we've received God's favor, but we are God's favorites. And the prophetic writings over and over and over, when you read the Old Testament prophets, it's the word of God calling out Israel saying, you are not doing what you were supposed to be doing. You're part of the kingdom of God, but you're living just like the kingdoms of the world. The money that came in, the food that came in, all those things, you think those just came out of nowhere? Or even more so, he says, do you think it was you? He tells Israel, you were nothing. You were the least. And yet I blessed you. So everything that Israel had was theirs. Why? Because God gave it to them. And he's, that's why he's able to say, and by not doing so, you're now robbing me. The equivalent of you borrowing my truck so that you could go take the leaves that are in your yard and carry them uh, off to uh, biomass or something like that. And then you bring my truck back and you go, Jeff, guess what? What? I have a gift for you. I like gifts. What do you got? Your truck. Like that's not a gift. Like if you really thought that, then you stole my truck. You just brought it back. But this is what God's saying. Listen, every good and perfect gift comes from him. It's all his. So the issue of giving and tithing is about an act of worship to God because God comes first and God moves first. We love because he first loved us. And so we are giving, why? Because he first gave to us. It's in response to the fact that God gives. And this takes, this goes all the way down. Now there's, there's some people I should say, well then how, how much do we give? Is it 10%? Is it 10% this? I, I loved how this, this pastor guy that this said, he, he said, I've never heard anyone come to me and say, 
So what is it then? 10%? Isn't 10% like an Old Testament thing? It's not really a New Testament thing because that was in the law. So are we supposed to give 10%? Is that what we're supposed to give? And he says, I've never heard anyone ask that question that wasn't actually just trying to keep more money from themselves. And he said, so here's how I answer that. I'll tell you what. Jesus didn't tithe his blood. He poured it all out. He is first. He moved first. He poured it all out. So give accordingly. Give in response to that. Given worship of the Lord who poured himself out for us and poured everything out. Give like Jesus. And why is that so hard to hear sometimes? Because Jesus said himself, the issue of money is one of the heart, a discipleship of the heart. And he wants us to grow in trusting him. And he wants to move throughout the world and spread the kingdom of God throughout the world. And so he says, look, bring it, bring it bring, see if I don't open up the storehouses, see what I do, put me to the test. It's not about legalism, it's about allegiance, it's about worship, and it's about trust. Now, like I said, this is about giving like Jesus. So let's think about this. Take a look at Exodus chapter 13, if you would. This is Old Testament, but it's about Christ. Exodus 13.1 says this. And the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. And then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you'll eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh there'll be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread will be eaten for seven days, and no leavened bread will be seen by you. No leaven seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For the strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore bring this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of Canaan, as he swore to your fathers and, give, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if, it, if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time you come, excuse me, and when in time to come, in other words, down the road, when your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So what is he saying here in this particular text? Remember, what was the kind of society that, that people of Israel were? They weren't engineers. 
They weren't building airplanes or automobiles or mining for oil or doing any of those kinds of things. They were an agrarian society. They had crops. They had livestock. They had animals. That's why all the tithe systems used animals. That's, that's kind of what their wealth was. And he says, one day, when you get to the land that I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you land that was never yours. I'm going to bless you with this fertile land, which is really helpful when you're in an agrarian society, right? I'm going to bless you with all of this stuff. And then here's what you're going to do. You're going to take the first fruits, the firstborn. You're going to take the first and the best, and you're going to sacrifice that for me. In one of the cases, he even says, like, if you can't come to the temple to sacrifice, you just, just break its neck, just kill it. Now, you've got to imagine, if you're a young fella growing up on the ranch, and you're thinking about the family business, and you're watching the babies being born by the cow, and you're thinking, like, oh, man, this is going to be a great harvest year. Look at all these animals being born. And then you saw your dad just go grab, like, the firstborn, the best, and the first of your flock, and he just snaps its neck. You've got to, there's, I would imagine there would be questions. Like, what are you, dad, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And why not Cats. Like, really? Like, they're everywhere. I said they're in the paper, free. We'll just go get a few of those. Like, what? We're ranchers. This is how we live. This is where our money comes from. This is our survival. Why would you do this? And the response is, son, it wasn't always like this. We didn't have land. We didn't have cattle. We didn't have anything. We had nothing. We had no food. We were slaves in a foreign land, but God had mercy on us, and he spared us. He, he is first, and he moved first, and he came and rescued us, and so we were just so blown away by what God has done for us. Look at this land, son. You see all this? He just gave us this, man. I don't have to put a down payment on this. He gave it to us, and so we think about how good God has been to us when we were just terrible slaves. And by the way, you don't even want to know about all the grumbling we did. This is in response to how good God is for us. Now, what is the Passover? What do we know, Bible students? What is it that the Passover is pointing to? It's Jesus, God's firstborn, the best and firstborn, the preeminent one that God moved first, gave his best, gave his first. When? while we were sinners, while we were enslaved, so that we can then say to our kids, and I am not the man that you know. I've not always been that guy. I've done terrible things in my life. I've hurt people. I have used people. I've abused people. I've stolen from people. I've done all these things in my life. I, I, I wasn't always the guy that you know. I was slave. I was a slave to myself. I was a slave to my sin. I was a slave to this and this and this. This is who I was. And yet, while I was yet a sinner, Christ moved with compassion on me. And he called me. And he adopted me into his family. He made me his son, just like you, son. And not only that, he told me, like, I'm going to take care of you. I have a future for you. I have a blessing for you. And then he, then he says about Christ, he says, and, and everything I have is yours. And so, son, it is in response to the goodness of God that I want to be able to worship and make sure that my heart is primarily motivated by the worship of God. And so the first thing I want to do is say, I'm just giving this back to you, Lord. I want to make sure that I'm about the kingdom of God. I, don't want, to, I want to make sure that my heart is not corrupt, that I'm setting myself up to become a slave again to something else. I don't want to do that. I want to be able to lay all these things at the feet of Christ and say, you are first, 
You came first, you moved first, and you will be first in my life. That's how we give like Jesus. It's going to mean something different to a lot of you. It's going to mean different for one person than it is the other. But it's a question every single person needs to wrestle with. What does this mean to me? When I start with the goodness and mercy of God in my life, and then I think about what am I going to do with the things that he's given me? Lord, what are you speaking to me? How do I do this? And, and Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me. Is my heart harboring love for things over you? Is there idolatry going on in my heart? Or is it you first, Lord? And then show me what to do. And you go, man, if I do that, it might be scary. It's like praying for humility. You don't pray for humility, right? You just don't do that because you know that usually that means we're going to get humiliated. Like, so we don't want that. That's scary, but that's where God says, no, 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 no. Why, are you, why are you anxious? Why are you afraid? I'm, I'm your father. You have a good father. Haven't I always taken care of you? Look how I took care of the Israelites. They were nothing. Look how I took care of you when you weren't even looking for help. Look how I gave my first and best on behalf of you when all you were looking for was yourself. Like, I've all. I'm not going to save you, Jeff, to leave you dangling. But I want to make sure you understand. I move first, but I am first. I want to make sure you understand, Jeff, that you're investing in things that matter because I'm for your joy and there's a better world coming. Amen? That makes sense? We're done five minutes early and I'm going to go ahead and end it that way. I probably talked a little bit faster because, like I said, I am not feeling good at all but it will give me such great bragging rights at our staff meeting tomorrow to be able to tell everybody I got done five minutes early. So let's finish. Can you guys stand with me? So Father, the first thing I want to pray for is that you would protect every one of your followers here against guilt. Help us to discern the difference between conviction and condemnation. Help us to understand your call, not the enemy's threats and finger pointing. And then, Lord, the things that you are calling us to, show us. Show us what to give. Show us when to give. Show us how much to give. Lord, we're about to go in and have a board meeting right now with the executive board of directors here at this church, which decides how money even at this church is spent. Lord, may you continue to shepherd your church so that we're not giving... or or we're not using your resources in a way that is unworthy of you, that we'd be stewards of what is given. I do pray, Lord, you would bless everyone here. I pray that they would find blessing in the things going on in this church, but I pray, Lord, that you would just bless them, not because of some financial thing necessarily, or not because um, we want them to think good about us, none of those things. Lord, I pray you'd bless them because they're growing in faith and trust of their Heavenly Father. So God, will you teach us and instruct us and show us how to respond to the incredible, lavish mercy, love, and grace you've poured out on us? Show us how to be good stewards of your gift. Show us how to be able to invest in your kingdom. May we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. In Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. God bless you guys.